0: Welcome to Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitz, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record a podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1:30 Pacific, 4:30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast: The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics, and the last show of 2022. I'm Marcos Molitzes. I'm here with Carrie Alaveld, and this is our end of year discussion, I guess. Carrie, it's been recap, recap. You know, every year, you know, 2020 was a nightmare because of COVID. 2021 just as much because oh my god, it's another year of COVID. 2022, 2022 launched with. Uh, um the narrative and the feeling that, oh, my God, Republicans are going to take Congress. And this year, just it's just going to be another another terrible year. The news wasn't great. Elon Musk doing Elon Musk things and and Trump's ad antics. And so it seemed like, oh, here we go. Twenty twenty two. Can can any of these years be OK? And then it actually it actually ended really nice. I mean, yeah. we we won an election <laughs> We kept. We expanded our majority in the Senate. We won governorships in all the key states, secretary of state's offices in every single battleground, 2022 battleground, except for Georgia. And at least there, we know that the guy's not going to steal an election for Donald Trump. Right. And the uh, we we lost the House because of gerrymandering, but we lost it in perhaps the best way possible by. In that their majority is so narrow that they are in the middle of a outright civil war, where right now, you know, we we had well, last week we 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 talked to Joan McCarter, senior writer at Daily Coast, and and she thought we all thought okay, it's probably probable that that Kevin McCarthy is the is the speaker of the House. It doesn't even look like that might happen at this point.
1: I would like to say there was this giant leaf blower outside they were like doing the gutters while we were <laughs> while we were <laughs> while we were recording and so there was a lot that i didn't say um this and this is yeah two weeks ago and and or two episodes two weeks ago, ago yeah and so right and and so I actually wasn't sure that McCarthy was going to bring it home, but there was Oh, oh, like, no,
0: oh now yeah, you're going to yeah. claim. Okay. It's because of the leaf floor. It's
1: because of the leaf floor. Honestly, <laughs> I, just, I just don't think McCarthy can bring this home. And, um, you know, it's easier to say now. Like, I just don't think he can. I, I, um, I just really wonder, especially we heard, um, I don't know, sometime last week someone asked, uh, you know, Steve Scalise about whether or not he – he supports something. Does he think McCarthy has the votes or get the votes or whatever? And, and Steve's Scalise, instead of say, of course he will, of course he's going to get the vote said something like, listen, I'm just keeping my head down and doing my work and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it was like, it was, it, I mean, it was so clearly like, I am knifing my boss in the back. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say one way or the other, whether or not he's going to succeed and whether or not I, he has my full throated endorsement. And also that, <laughs> then this is the best thing. Did we talk about this? How everything, how, how there's this never Kevin movement, right? Of like five people who have said, (laughs) it's, it's it's the, I call it the Nev Kev movement. In my head, every time someone says never Kevin, I'm like the Nev Kev movement, right? And it's like five or six people who have pledged that they're not going to vote for him, which, which alone, you know, tosses his, his chances, unless he can get a bunch of people to vote present, blah, blah, blah. But which, which then might, there, which he might. Then it's, he might. he might, he yeah. might. But then, in order to like make it, in order to who, in order to um, combat that, there's a group of people who are wearing pins around this week. That was that is the only Kevin movement, and it's been re- reduced down to a little button that says "Okay" on it, <laughs> and that's like "Okay." is the most enthusiasm (laughs) that they can bring for like, you know, not like Kevin or die or, you know, something like that. Just like, okay. He's okay. Okay. so Oh my (laughs) God. It's
0: so great. So the, and you know what I got to say, you know, everybody's talking about Twitter and and the implosion of Twitter as a platform is, is actually very distressing. And it's sort of my, my main social media outlet as well. So I, I don't like, what is happening? I do enjoy seeing the mirage of Elon Musk punctured in this way where he's just he could have been. He's like Donald Trump. He, he could have just kept his mouth shut, done what he kept doing and had a good life. And people would think, oh, yeah, Donald Trump, he's a successful businessman and and uh, and, you know, he owns all his real estate. And oh look how wealthy he is. That would have been the end of it. And for Elon Musk, he could have been people could have talked about how he he created the first new car company in 80 years and how he brought about this electric revolution and how he shot for the moon and Mars and created yeah. rockets that land themselves on a dime. I mean, I know a lot of people want to minimize his accomplishments, but they're real because nobody thought that stuff was possible. But. What happens when somebody who is a self-avowed Asperger on the on the autism spectrum, who knows he doesn't do social well, it's great when he's talking to engineers and it's great when that pig headedness is dealing with investors who may be saying, like, I don't think you could launch rockets that land themselves automatically maybe that helps there but you if you're not good at social you don't buy a social media outlet and what we've now seen is that that the guy's kind of an idiot he's definitely an asshole and he is he has that trumpian thing where he will play to the crowd that that worships him the most so trump could be like yeah i'm not touching qAnon i'm not touching white supremacists no they said they love trump so therefore he loved them back and Elon Musk loved liberals as long as liberals like me and I own a Tesla. People like me were like, yeah, this guy's great. He's like like carbon neutral cars. How cool is that? Like, let's let's go all electric. Not so great when it's it's again, QAnon and and the people willing to be obsequious to people like Donald Trump or Elon Musk, because us liberals, we're not going to be like, oh, Elon, you're so great. Like (laughs) everything you do is is wonderful. And so I actually been enjoying seeing that that bubble burst, even though I hate what he's really doing to Twitter. So it's just kind of the collapse of this mythos of Donald Trump with the NFT trading cards uh, last week with Elon Musk. So it seems like a lot of the stuff that was horrible about the last few years, it seems to be like resolving itself.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, first of all, I just got to wonder, what is it about people who are kind of antisocial and have trouble like either buying or building social media networks. I mean, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, wasn't exactly like, you know, Mr. Life of the Party. Um, He created that because he was, if I understand it correctly, because he was pissy because he didn't have enough like friends or something. I can't remember what the background was on that, but it like was, it was like not, he was like created it. And, and then, and, and, you know, I don't think those people are are end up doing well in terms of making positive contributions to the social interactions of other people. Um, I will say, like, it's just is bizarre to me that people like Mark Zuckerberg and I mean, frankly, um, Elon Musk is making Mark Zuckerberg look like the life of the party. He's, he's like, <laughs> like Bill Whoa. Gates looks great. Like you know I what? Mean, rather... you, know, you have these moments where you're like, well, if you had to go over like you know people this classic question, if someone was if 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 you had if you had if someone was gonna if you were had to go over and ask someone to dance with you, would you ask Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? Well, Zuckerberg, I would ask. Zuckerberg.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to think about it. <laughs>
1: It's bad news either way, but come on. You never ask the question with like Brad Pitt and someone else, you know, you ask the question. so Anyway, but, um, but the interesting thing is, is, you know, I do wonder if this is an opportunity to reshape Twitter a little bit. We've learned a lot about how Twitter works and what some of the good things and bad things. And I'm not someone who's thought about this a ton. So I'm not going to like, you know, wax poetic on it for quite a while here, but I just will say, from a journalistic standpoint, and that's how you and I kind of engage with it, right, is we see stories and we talk, you know, we get stories, we see what, you know, I oftentimes use quotes that other reporters are on the hill, I can't be on the hill, they're on the hill, and I use the quotes that they come with and whatever, and I I cite them and stuff like that. But, you know, I think what we saw in 2022 was this herd mentality got even worse, it seems like there's such an immediate price to pay on twitter now where people can be just absolutely savage they can be vicious they can you know they can really lash out for you know that that if you are not if you are swimming against <clears throat> the mainstream against the conventional wisdom as simon rosenberg was doing as we were doing you know as joe trippy you know greg Sargent, tom we were all swimming against the the and we were doing it based as we've talked about on facts and looking at the data and i had a real gut instinct about movements because i've covered them um, and what it means to have your rights taken away and how that ignites Mm -hmm. people and um but you know mainstream or it's conventional wisdom in washington and mainstream journalists in dc just weren't having it they just were not having it and I, and none of they would have arguments. I, I never engage in Twitter arguments. It's like useless to me, but they would have arguments with Simon Rosenberg. And that's part of what Simon was doing, was trying to convince the mainstream media that they were off on like an island with this stupid red wave thing. And, um, you know, but no one wanted to go out on a limb and say, wait a second, guys, except for, you know, who I saw doing it sometimes was Ronald Brownstein of uh, CNN, political analyst at CNN and, and senior editor at The Atlantic. Of course, he's kind of a genius. He's like mad genius I, when it yeah, comes I was going to data. say he, he's so, he's
0: kind of next He's No, level, Chris no, no he, the guy's actually smart.
1: Yeah. So but but like no one want everyone wanted to be on the red wave bandwagon uh, because they just couldn't, <clears> you know, they they couldn't bear being out of step with all their fellow journalists in D.C. And I think that Twitter makes that worse. It makes the instinct, the herd instinct, the conventional wisdom instinct, particularly in the Beltway, worse. Um, And and I'm wondering if there is a way, as you know, we look at a different style of Twitter, uh, you know, reforming it, whatever, that there is a way to come up with something that doesn't reinforce Narratives that aren't true narratives just it, because everyone's that's what everybody is saying.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I may disagree with you a little bit here. Nope. Um, I, I've been, I was, I was, this is a true story. I can't believe this actually happened. It sounds fake, it actually happened. Right. <clears throat> this was 2003. And this was during the Howard Dean boomlet, right? So when, when uh, he was starting to take off and I was at a DC cocktail party, it was a little, literally I was at a DC cocktail party and somebody sat, you know, somebody was talking to me and, uh, and, and he he or she, I forget, said like, yeah, you know, Howard Dean can't get elected. He's too liberal. He can't get elected. He's unelectable because he's too liberal. And then person A told person B I was, I was in a group, right? You know, he can't get elected. It's, it's you know, he's, he's, he's unelectable. Then person B told person C. So the third, you know, yeah, Howard Dean can't get elected because he's too liberal. And it was civil unions. That was the thing. Yeah, civil unions. He can't get elected. That's too liberal, civil unions. Then I saw person C talking to person A, the first person in the chain. Howard Dean can't get elected because, you know, civil unions. He's too liberal. And person A said, I know that's what I've been telling people. And it was literally the circle where they were reinforcing each other's beliefs at a D.C. cocktail party. So, yes, you're right. Twitter acts in that same capacity. Absolutely. Agree 100 percent. The difference, though, is that somebody like Simon Rosenberg can be like, "Uh, guys, you know, here's some data that sort of, you know, kind of kind of brings into question your a priori. You you might want to rethink this. And, and that public pressure forces a lot of these journals. Now they may dig in like they did this time. Absolutely.: Yeah. But I would like to think that after the results, maybe some of those people will be a little more humble next time. Maybe they'll realize, you know, maybe I shouldn't be so uh, so certain about things because I was just humiliated publicly. And it's that public scrutiny because in that DC co- co- uh, cocktail party circuit, none of those people are accountable, right? Because our no, no. Dean wins, loses don't matter, right? They're going to they're just going to jump onto the next. Yeah. And this is where I think Twitter has value and where I actually really weep. And this whole idea like oh, everybody, let's go to Mastodon. I don't want to be with a bunch of liberals because I'm not against that. And if people need you know, safe spaces to organize, I think that's great. Like have a place where liberals can get together and plan ahead. The next battle's wonderful. My interest in Twitter is less about preaching to the choir. We have Daily Coast for that. I mean, we we have our own social media outlet for that. For me, Twitter is a place where you can try to influence that dominant media narrative to point at it, to call it out, to either say like this time they got it right or no, this time this is not supported by the facts. And to put some of that oversight and pressure on these reporters that I suspect next time may be a little more humble because I got to say, my first and maybe I'm different than everybody else. Maybe some of these reporters are psychopaths and don't care. Right. But I remember when I first started Daily Kos back in 2002, I swore up and down that uh, that the Democrats were going to win that midterm election. I was so convinced and publicly, yeah, we're going to win. And that's a year that Democrats did not do very well. They got they got their asses whooped. And so I've been like so publicly like sure of it. And it's happened multiple times. I was sure Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016. I was sure of it. The data. I remember
1: remember reading your reading your stuff and thinking he's sure of it. It feels good. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I I, I didn't know. But and so
0: being Mm -hmm. public about a prediction and then being wrong has a way. If if you have if you're a normal human being with with notions of shame and embarrassment and pride, you're like I don't, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I don't ever want to be in that position again. And so the hope is that next time, all these people that mocked and dismissed Simon Rosenberg for basically just saying, "Like, look at the data, guys," and not even, not even polls, because the polls you could say, "Yeah, the polls were wrong. We were wrong in 2016 because the polls were wrong." We mm-hmm. were looking at the data; the data was wrong. So there's, there's always a chance.
1: Well, and, and I, let's just remember <clears> that 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 in the last two weeks that 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 polling actually changed, right? I mean, part of it was is that the polling that was a month out didn't include Comey coming out and saying, oh, we're True. launching another investigation True. and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. there, were, there were actual real October surprises in that <clears throat> 2016 election that affected things. So the polling may not have been wildly off, you know, like a month yeah, out, yeah. but by the time the, but it was certainly two weeks behind you know, by the time you get to the election. So that's part that was part of it.
0: That's true. But we also in 2016, we didn't have the early vote as a marker of enthusiasm. And again, by its very lonesome self, it wasn't definitive, right? Because again, there's context, you know, everybody, all the Democrats could have voted the first week of the election and there were no more Democrats left. Like we didn't know what that universe looked like, but it sort of showed like if the premise is that democratic performance in, in, in enthusiasm is down, then we wouldn't be seeing these early vote numbers. And in fact, we did not see them in Florida because enthusiasm within Democrats was not high in Florida. And then we saw that right. Florida, was, you know, just like Texas were two places where Democrats did not do well, were two places where the early vote was weak. It was also weak in Nevada. So we knew going into Nevada that we were in trouble because uh, John Ralston of the Nevada Independent, he tracked that stuff. And he was saying like, this is not looking good for Democrats. We lost yeah. the governor race and we barely hung on to that Senate race. Barely, barely, right. barely. So the early vote actually is a indicator. And so we had that. We had the special elections. We had, yes, we had the polls and we had trends. We could see that, that the, the numbers were trending in our direction very slightly. But we could see that Democrats were improving in those last few weeks of the election as opposed to the opposite. So we had a lot of information and and um the our ability to be able to look at that and analyze that dispassionately i think allowed us and people like simon rosenberg and yeah people accuse us of hopium trafficking in the hopium but it turns out that we were actually trafficking in reality and had republicans won it would not have been because we were trafficking in hope like it would have been cuz all these markers were were wrong but there was enough data there that we're like we can say like and we Carrie, you remember we kept saying like, maybe there will be a red wave. Like we're not saying oh, yeah, definitively no, there won't be. Yeah. It's just we don't see the evidence for it. Yeah, Where is this right. evidence?
1: Right. There's no there's no evidence of it. Yeah. No. So, so that's another
0: great thing about twenty twenty four. The twenty twenty two. The data actually okay. was just, just yeah. positive. And True. We right.
1: Can I add one thing about this Twitter discussion and then we can probably end it. But I I, I, I so I agree with you. You're you're basically say, I'm saying it it increases the herd mentality, right? Especially in among DC journalists, yeah, right? Not I'll everybody.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. So and and then you're saying, but <laughs> what it also does is it gives people like Simon Rosenberg basically direct access to pushback, right? That's true too. That's and true publicly, too. Public, publicly, could
0: call him up, publicly. and he did, and he says he called yeah. him up,
1: but right? Publicly, right. So, up. so publicly, right? Uh, exactly, a forum, a public forum in which to do it. Um, assuming that people, you know, that we don't all get banned eventually. <laughs> but, uh, that's a whole it, another, but that's a whole other <laughs> right. topic. So we're not going to get into that, but th- that's a whole nother topic. But um, but th- so I agree. I agree with that. That's a good point. Um, the one thing I would say is another problem with the press is really the national press based in D.C. is that they have so much power now. I mean, Simon Rosenberg, looking at the stats and whatever, and I don't know if this is provably true, but he really thinks that it could be that there was so much red wave talk that it could have cost um, Democrats several seats, the house. maybe even maybe even a handful of seats. In other words, it could have cost Democrats the majority because mm-hmm. so many people were saying there's going to be a red wave. And it was, you know, it was kind of deflating and disheartening to Democrats. Right. Um, of course, there were a whole group of organizers who were who just kept on moving, kept on doing their thing. There were a whole group of you know, activists who kept on doing their thing. And that that was, you know, that steadfastness is what saved us, along with this just shocking Dobbs uh, decision um, overturning Roe. But I will say that one of the ways to national journalists, I think, have just consolidated so much power in part because local journalism has been decimated and because, you know, it's it's all, all that power that of the national political journalists sort of you know is ha, core has been just located in DC and you don't get as many people in these you know other points of view um, from the local journalists from you know uh, other places and one thing that that we can do we all can do i mean you you're listening is that if you find someone that you think is good, that you appreciate their work, and you think that they're, you know, that they have an alternative viewpoint, or maybe sometimes they agree, but that they're worth listening to, is to elevate their work instead of just the national journalists. That is one way to to actually try to democratize a little bit the journalism um, and, and and decentralize the power that has been given to the national journalists. Sure, they have access to certain things that we don't. I definitely, when I was in D.C., had access to certain things that, that people outside of D.C. didn't. But it doesn't mean that they're omnipotent and it doesn't mean that they understand elections or campaigns better than other people. Um, sometimes they have more access to internal polling and things like that. But internal polling isn't the end all be all. Um, and and so, you know, like, and they only
0: they only see what campaigns want them to see. So, again, it's right. narrative shaping. It's exactly. not necessarily if it's sh- if they're not showing you the crappy like, polls.
1: It's shared with the journalists. It's shared for a reason. Okay. So and it's the journalist's job to be like, I hope I'm not getting played here. I see these numbers, maybe I should check that against something else to make sure that I'm not just being used as a, you know, a a PR campaign. But, um, but in any case, we can decentralize that power a little bit. I mean, we need to elevate local journalism, that would help. But also, you can just Find someone that you think they're smart, you think that they're doing good work, and you can elevate them on your Facebook page or your Twitter account or whatever to help decentralize the power of those folks a little bit.
0: I got I got a suggestion, Carrie. So there's this there's this great, incredibly uh, smart and um, insightful political reporter named Carrie Alabeld <laughs> at Daily Coast, And, um, you know, you think I'm 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 totally 100 percent serious and. Oh, that's it's I mean, you 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 want sort of contextualizing this information because a lot of journalism is this happened. You get a lot of this happened or they will throw a lot of polls at you. And they might not even properly write about those polls. The New York Times famously had those four House polls that had the Democrats leading in all of them. And yet the headline was about how fresh new evidence that the Republican wave is on its way, the polls had literally nothing to do with his with this with this headline it was so, crazy and and so I, I would i would i mean if you're listening to this podcast i assume you read daily Coast, but but like seriously if you want real solid contextualized information on the political situation the, the debates in dc the polling i mean carrie is like she nails it. there's a reason i asked her to be my co-host here and it's no and uh it's because i i consider her one of the best political reporters <laughs> And writers and thinkers and analyzers. And so context is incredibly important. And no no BS. Like we don't bullshit as a as a rule. And Carrie certainly doesn't bullshit. So it's really, really great that that we have Carrie and that she's available. So like seriously, talk about decentralizing political coverage. Like look at people who got this election right. And Carrie is one of the people who did.
1: Yeah. And there's others, too. I s- <laughs> really appreciate I, I super there appreciate are. that. But there are yeah. others, too. And, and, you know, Greg Sargent was one of them, I think, was out there. And there were other people. Um, Ronald Brownstein. I mean, you just can't go wrong with that guy. He has just nope. ba- his his grounding in real data trends over the course of two to three decades is is unmatched. So anyway. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's great. So really, uh, I mean, <laughs> Just to sort of come back to 2022. I mean, really the year started rough. R- I mean the Supreme Court obviously, and and it ended the way it did because people really fought hard this election. They ignored that media narrative. They ignored all the noise. They 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 focused on what was important, and that was protecting their rights and to push back this threat against democracy. And we did something as a movement, as a party, as a, you know, Joe Biden as a president that hadn't been done since 1934, I think, 88 years since the party yeah. in the White House in the midterm election both picked up governorships and Senate seats. 88 years. This was not. This is why that media narrative was so basic, because in nobody's recorded in remembered history had the party in power been able to manage anything like this. What we did is we we broke that long long losing streak for the party in power. And we did it fairly convincingly. I mean this this was not a fluky election. And we did a lot of things right. We got we finally convinced Democrats to engage on the culture wars. I mean right, we talked about issues. that last week with uh, Jen Fernandez and Kona like it was mm-hmm not about, oh, we got to talk about kitchen table issues and then talk about the things Republicans wanted to talk about, which was high gas prices, inflation. We shifted the terrain of the, of the debate, even though the media didn't want to play ball, That's even right. though there was parts of the Democratic Party that did not want to play ball. And hopefully that has now, it's positive reinforcements, like, oh, <laughs> this kind of works. Next time we'll do, we'll, Campaign on what is popular for us and will not campaign on whatever issues they may have going for them, whether it's Honduran caravans or crime or whatever, whatever they'll make up, whatever, because they're going to make something up. But now we have this, 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 and Carrie, you and I were sort of discussing this. The, the, there was a sprint, right? There, there's been like every election is the most important election in our lifetime and it's exhausting and it's burning people out. I can see it. We can see it on Daily Co's traffic numbers. People are just they're fried and they're tapping out. And now may seem like a good time to tap out. Like, whew, we saved democracy, but we haven't. So there has to be real thinking about how we remain healthy, how we how we run this marathon, not sprint after sprint after sprint, because eventually you gas out. But how do you sort of train this into thinking this is a marathon? Just like just like the you know the anti-abortion movement spent fifty years working on how to how to move the Supreme Court towards eliminating Roe v. Wade, and this is the this is what we need to do now. We now have proven that we can win a tough election. Right. How do we sustain right. that?
1: Right. Well, so. Um, First, of all, the anti-abortion movement was, um, you know, the, literally like puritanical. They're zealots. So <laughs> that's the reason they stay focused on that. So it helps for, for such a long time. Right. Yeah. And then and then and then the Republican Party was like, whoa, we got these people that are just like literally true believers. Um, you know, we we can be tr- our own true believers uh, in protecting democracy and reforming democracy. So it works for everybody. And I think you know, first of all, like liberals in general are sort of prone to a certain amount of cynicism. We're doubters. We, you know, we want to think things through. We don't want to jump on something. We want to, you know, get in there and, and, and you know, look under the hood and make sure that we, and then and then, you know, cynicism, especially for Gen Xers, I feel like is a backstop to you know, disappointment. It's like, well, I always expected it was going to be this way, you know, and um, and frankly, watching politics is just a is just a, a recipe for becoming a cynic because so many things don't happen. The truth of the matter is, is that is that this year and the past three election cycles have been proved positive that things that good outcomes do happen. They don't happen always on the timeline that we want. They don't happen always all at once. Right. And in 2020 was the perfect example. We took back the White House. We clawed back the White House from and it wasn't easy. It wasn't Ooh. easy. But at the same time, I mean, you know, we, we had like Democrats had enormous turnout, but so did Republicans. <clears throat> and and, you know, the numbers on that, I I always forget them. But but the point is, is that it wasn't easy. And then what happened, we had was, eight
0: million more people voted for Joe Biden than did but, for Hillary Clinton. And for Trump, six million people more voted for Trump in 2020 than did in 2016.
1: Right. So so Joe Biden did a better job, but it's not like he just crushed Trump. Right. We all know no. that. So so we literally clawed the White House back. But at the same time, then um, we didn't get as many. You know, we lost a bunch of really important state state level races. Um, and then we were, you know, we were behind the eight ball a little bit once again on on trying to do the redistricting. So, uh, you know, we've made gains every cycle since 2018. It hasn't come all at once, but it's just. I think what we have to. What I came to the conclusion. I think that I talked about even on the show. You were away. Um, I had uh we we had Joe Sudbay on and um. And Carolyn. And at one point, I just came to the conclusion that this is no longer a distraction from what we're doing. Okay. Um, For a while, we thought, oh, God, I can't believe we're, we're bogged down with this Trump guy. He's such a jerk. And he's, you know, and he's sociopathic. And he is, you know, cringy constantly. And he's dominating our lives. And if we could just get this guy out of office, and we just get through these four years, we'll be fine. Okay, that is that is not what's happening here. He ushered in a new era where he uncovered just a really horrific underbelly um, that it's not that it wasn't there. He just like unleashed it. You know, he just kind of gave it life so that we could all see it. And this is no longer. Well, if we can just get through this cycle, then we'll be okay. This is the work of a generation. And for Gen Xers, you know, we didn't we didn't get to contribute a whole lot. Frankly, when, you know, we grew up at a time when there was scare about certainly nuclear nuclear war, but the there wasn't a World War One or a World War War Two. And by the time I I was growing up, uh, Vietnam had had basically passed. I mean, had mostly passed. We were less affected by that. Well, um, we had the invasion
0: out, of Grenada. Yeah. Did that affect you? Did <laughs> that shape your no, worldview? No.
1: Did not shape my worldview. <laughs> now, of course, we, we, you know, we had 9-11 and the millennial generation is yes. more affected by that than anything. But but but, you know, we didn't we haven't had this moment where, man, there's uh, there's got to be a draft. We've got to you know, we've got to put it all on the line to save democracy, to end fascism, to whatever we this is. This is our moment to give back. This is our generational moment to do something for the country. And we don't have to do it by ruining our, our lives every two years. Um, we can be happy warriors in this in this fight, I think. And we can do that with a little bit of a change of perspective, not, oh, if, if we don't do it this year, it, we're, it, the whole democracy is going to end and it's over, OK? We keep managing, and I'm not saying it's been easy, and I'm not saying that, oh, we could let up and then we can just get back to it next cycle or anything, but we keep managing. There is this um, anti-Trump, anti-MAGA, pro-democracy majority that continues to show up at the polls. There are the organizers that continue to do the work. There are more and more donors investing in election protection and things like that. Like, we are learning as a party that, yes, we have to, you know, we have to hold each other accountable. I, I'm not advocating for, we get someone in office and then we just don't, you know, we don't ever say a bad thing about them or we don't try to advocate for them doing the absolute most. We do have to have that. And I know we're, we're coming to a close here, but we are learning how to, um, you know, how to ha- have messages that go beyond, you know, that, that, that work together that um, where you're hearing things not just from Washington but you're hearing it from the organizers you're hearing it from the white house you're hearing it from the um, you know places like daily coast and, 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 and candidates outlets.
0: you know that john fetterman said people right, who are and, building their own movement and, and candidates, aoc right, and, yeah
1: right and 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 we managed to let everybody know democracy is on the line again this time and and you know, we can't have these election deniers be secretaries of state. We, you know, we, we've got, the, and, and this came through. So I just think that this is no, lo- this is the work of a generation. And we don't have to go Harry carry every time. It's always going to be a little stressful towards the end of a, of a campaign season. It always is. It never was not stressful. There was never a time when we were like, oh, oh this is no big yeah. deal. It's it's always stressful if you're putting in the work and then you want to see the dividends get paid at the end of the set of the cycle. Right. So so I just I I think that this just has to become incorporated in our lives and who we are. We don't just get to buy things and go have fun and do stuff and just like, you know, everything's just um, democracy is just on autopilot. Um, we do get to do fun things, but anyway, I'm just saying, yeah.
0: yeah, I love the idea of happy warrior. Like we gotta have fun. This is not a chore. This is not the. This is not eating your veggies. This is part of being joyfully who we are, embracing our love of freedom and of democracy and of the rights that we all cherish. Understanding that there's another side that wants to take those away does not mean that we lose our humanity in the process. We lose our humor. We lose you know having fun. And politics is very much a social and uh, social event. And It can be joyful. And I think we are social media makes it more fun. Uh, Even hating on Republicans can be fun. And and this is why Twitter needs to survive. You know, when's Elon going to get bored and sell it and move on? But this is I mean, this is what we are. This is what we do, of course, at Daily Coast, And this is what we're going to be doing next year. And, you know, we'll be talking in the new year about big races you know, we have a Wisconsin Supreme Court race in April. That's going to be a big deal. So we'll be talking about things like that. But we do have a moment to sort of recharge. doesn't mean tune out. doesn't mean walk away. doesn't mean, you know, kind of clap your hands and say, like, mission accomplished and walk away. That's what happened in 2008 after Obama won. And we're still suffering the consequences. Every gerrymander we're dealing with now happened in 2010 because liberals walked away during Barack Obama's first term. So we cannot do that mistake again. But Carrie, I don't think we are. That's the beauty. We do not win a midterm election for the first time in 88 years, the way we did, because people decided mission accomplished when Joe Biden won. I think people inherently are starting to really deeply understand this. We have reinforcements from Gen X, uh, for, sorry, from Gen Z and the millennials. Yeah. Uh, those guys are motivated. They're liberal. They're amazing. And so it's, there, there is a feeling that we're making progress and it's going to be hard, but we don't let's let's start thinking in that marathon metaphor so we can pace ourselves instead of just tuning out and then panicking three weeks out from the election. Let's let's pace ourselves. and I think we're going to be far more effective. That's our show for this year. Uh, for this year, we're going to be back next year. We're going to have episodes next year, and there's going to be a lot to talk about. And we're going to be building and talking about how to pace and, and talk about that marathon. It's how we talk to people, messaging, uh, how we invest in races, how we invest in candidates, how we support policy that are that our politicians are pushing in at the state level, at the federal level. At this, how do we, you know, talk about Supreme Court decisions? Because that court's going to be a problem. We're going to have a lot to talk about, but we can pace ourselves. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, usually it's the other way around. Is that what they say? It's a sprint, not a marathon. We're actually <laughs> saying the opposite. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So, Carrie, thank you so much. This has been an amazing year. I'm so glad I was able to share this space with you. I appreciate it so incredibly much in everything that you do. Thanks to Walter, our producer, for uh, the work he does. Incredible um, love and admiration for Walter and you, Carrie, and... Dorothy, and Paul, and everybody who helps out Mm -hmm. behind the scenes, and especially for you guys, guys, the listeners, and and viewers, and readers of Daily Codes, we wouldn't be here without you. You guys are amazing. You are on the forefront of our battle for our democracy. And I can't ever express my gratitude and love and appreciation for everything that you do. So thank you so very much. Have a wonderful holidays, however you celebrate it or not and uh but be able to take a few weeks relax enjoy eat lots of food be merry and then we'll see you guys in a new year thank you so very much thank you for listening if you're enjoying the show give us a rating wherever you get your podcast you can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on twitter at dailycoast.com